What up, young slumlords and ladies? This is Jake Lapp, and welcome to the Young Slumlords Podcast, where me and Caleb Henshaw talk our shiz and hopefully help spark the idea for finding your financial independence in this paycheck-to-paycheck world. What's up, everybody? Welcome back, and we're super excited this week. We have Susie Truax on. Me and Caleb have both talked on the podcast before about her son, who has been a huge part in both of our real estate moves and career so far. He's our go-to plumber and, you know, handyman extraordinaire. And uh, we were just over at his birthday party the other night, and we met his mother. And Caleb already knew her, but I just met her, and we, you know, sat around and did probably like three podcasts just talking about real estate and (laughs) all different types of stuff that she's doing and it was um really cool and we we're just we were excited to get her on and especially talk about you know women in this industry because there's not a lot like Caleb did some like looked into our listeners like the what's that called the demographic the demographic of who listens to this and it was like 10% out of all of our views are from women and it's like why is that so we definitely wanted to we're going to get into that later in the episode but we want to welcome in Susie and kind of ask, you know, how did you get started in real estate? Well, hey, guys, I just want to say, oh, my gosh, and hi to all your listeners. What a great conversation we had the other night. And normally, I, um, I'm i not the person who likes to talk about real estate at a party because, you know, I've been, I do it for a living. So who likes to talk about their work when they're out having fun? But to connect with you guys was so awesome because, number one, Oh, I've known Caleb for uh, so long that he knows I call him the weekend warrior. (laughs) (laughs) And that's from when little Caleb came into my house and wearing a little motorcycle jacket. And maybe you were like 15 years old, Caleb, or even younger. But anyway, a super like super little guy like he I towered over him at this time, not the other way around. And um, I love to help young people get started with investing. And and quite frankly, I wish someone had told me when I bought my first house, when I was about, I guess I was almost coming up on maybe 30 years old when I bought, bought my first house and paying rent, which is like just, I mean, unless unless you have to, or you're not staying in a place long-term or you don't know where you're going to go, renting's fine. But if you're going to be in the area and where wherever it is, so much better to buy something than pay rent. But anyway, uh, so it was so much fun talking to you guys. We were so excited about just everything you guys are doing because they are the young. And I have some questions for you guys, for the audience too. And maybe you already answered this. We don't know how you came up with the name of your podcast, but I'll tell you quickly about me, how I got into real estate. So this is my uh, going into 22 years in business. I, I got my license and well, I first took my real estate classes probably when I was you guys age. Um, thinking that that was, you know, something I was, I was interested in it. And then I never did actually take the exam, got, you know, sidetracked doing other things. And then when my kids were little, I decided that I liked being a stay-at-home mom, but I wanted to go back into the workforce and I didn't want to go back to selling advertising because that was a nine to five job. And so, haha, I wanted a flexible job in real estate, which I'm making that laughing sound because in real estate is 24 seven, but that's how I got started. I wanted a job 
that was gave me flexible hours. I saw my realtor who I bought a house from. She made it look easy. So I decided to do that as well and follow up on that, you know, what I had already been doing. And my main goal was to take my kids to Disney World. And we, we've been almost, you know, we've been a lot of places in Disney World a whole bunch of times. But that's how I got started in it. Uh, yeah, that's my story. No, that's awesome. So that got you your foot in the door to like, selling real estate yes yes what when was that kind of transformative time that was like oh wait I'm, i'm seeing these was it like I'm working with these other investors and I'm seeing their returns and I was just being their agent and now oh. got tagged along or like, how did that happen? I wish it was so easy. So my early investors were guys who were doing, I can't even remember the name of the program. They were doing this crazy guys program. It was like use, you know, get people to like carry the mortgage for you. And I was showing investors properties. It's kind of funny that you asked that question because here I am. I, I remember my the first uh, young person I sold a house to was this guy who was renting, and then he was looking for one, you know, to buy one unit. He's 23 years old, and I said, "You should buy this three-unit apartment building. Like, if you're going to live there, buy this three-unit. Use FHA, almost, you know, almost no money out of your pocket, and you can live there. And then after you live there for a while, because FHA requires owner occupancy, but after you live there for a year or more, then you can move on and, you know, do something different. And so <laughs> I was advising people to invest and I had owned and I owned my own house, but the pivot point came when I decided I wanted to buy a bigger house than what I had. And my then husband said, well, we should turn this one into a rental because we don't need to sell it in order to buy that other one. And I was like, Oh, what? are you crazy? <laughs> Two mortgages? Let somebody live in my house and pay rent? Like this was a foreign concept to me. It didn't even, never dawned on me. Once I got over my fear, I became addicted. Mm-hmm. I became addicted to buying rental properties after that. Because I think the first one that we did, I think our uh, positive cash flow was about maybe $300 a month, which isn't a lot, but hey, passive income semi sort of yeah Absolutely. working towards ownership you know even if you made no if, if you were able to afford your house the, the next house and just have someone break even on the mortgage payments and stuff like that long term right. you're still ahead by a lot right. how did right. that go with the first like rental like getting the tenant like getting the house ready for tenants in and then being a landlord for the first time how did that process go i think i think it was um fairly easy because I didn't, I didn't have to use the MLS. I think we just put a for rent sign in the yard and, you know, it was a super great family neighborhood right near the middle school where all the kids went and the park was like around, around the corner and there was a bike trail and a green space down the street. So it was pretty in a pretty good area, desirable area and a desirable school district. So that was easy. That tenant worked out just fine. You know, that, that worked out really no problem. And so how long ago was this? Uh, let me think about it was 2000 the year 2000 was when we started out. That's awesome. So, yeah. so you were cash flowing 300 bucks a month in the year 2000. How does that property look now? Oh man. Oh, so I'll tell you what I paid $103,000 for that property. And now we ended up selling it due to certain circumstances for 190 in 2000. So so I'm going to say 8 years later. 
So it almost doubled in value. Mm -hmm. And I just saw in that same neighborhood, they're up to about 250,000 now. And, but the rent, if I, if I remember right, like maybe the rent was, I want to say a a, a thousand or 1100 a month. And now that same house would probably rent for closer to 18 or 19 because it was a four bedroom with a garage. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes things happen and if you split up with your partner, you sometimes have to, you know, if there's nobody buying anybody out, you have to do what you have to do. But it was a really, it was a really good location. But you know what? There's deals in every time in every market. Don't let, you know, don't look back over your shoulder. There's always deals out there. But so for our, for the first one, that was super easy because we already owned it. And it was, you know, it was our house, which we converted to a rental. Sure. So now you have this itch, you know, you. Oh, yeah. It makes sense now. In your head, it clicked. It went from being scary to just the way that things should be. You know, how did that go then Go moving forward? Oh, yeah. Well, then after that, so really, and that's the biggest thing for any of the people on your show who are thinking about getting into this, like feel the, feel the fear and do it anyway, because, and I'm not saying to go out there and gamble and, you know, back before the global financial crisis, people were buying houses with, you know, cash advantages on their credit cards. Like, this is craziness. We're not doing, I'm not advising anyone to do that, but just jump in because it it really is a way to build wealth for the regular person. And so, yeah. So after that, so having that place and then buying my house, then I think I really got a little swagger and I was like, let me see about these HUD houses. What are these HUD houses about? And so I think my next one. Can you explain HUD? Yeah, absolutely. So when I say a HUD house, I mean, that's a house that's been foreclosed upon. And typically HUD houses are FHA foreclosures, a housing and urban development. It's a federal program. And so when, when someone has an FHA mortgage and they don't pay and it gets foreclosed, HUD ends up with the property back in their um, in their stable. And I think you can check out, there's always HUD houses for sale all over the country. Go to a HUD home store dot something. Make sure you go on the right one because there's a bunch of sites that are, you know, not real and trying to skim off of the the real one, but it's HUD home store and you can click on the map and you can see what's available in, in your state. These are also listed on the MLS. So your realtor will have it, or if you are also a realtor, you'll find them in the MLS. But so that was my next purchase. I found a townhome that was three bedrooms, one and a half baths with a walkout basement also in an area uh, more about 20 minutes from my house, which to be honest, felt too far away. Um, <laughs> but I liked them right within 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. But, but this one was interesting because it was, uh, and it was before the run up in the market, before the global financial crisis, um, you know, 2005, this was probably about 2001, right after I, you know, got into that other house. This one was interesting because it had been sitting and sitting and sitting and sitting because it was kind of not attractive inside. Like it had, you know, teal green carpets, but more importantly, it had, you know, a lot of deferred maintenance. It was dirty and everybody wasn't a fixer back then. You know, a lot of people weren't handy. And then it had a cracked window in the front, like with a big board on it. And so I went and made a bid on that. I think I paid... 110,000 for that place and I got a 5% real estate commission on it because with HUD you can set your own commission price as the agent 
And Why so, won't you make it tw- a thousand percent? <laughs> well, I think they'll go up to like, I don't want them to, because it's, so how it works with HUD, right, is a bidding process. So you don't just go ahead and send them a contract. You're actually bidding. Right, so right, you, right. You, so you have like, to be competitive. Yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to, I want this deal to fly. Right. I don't want the, I don't want to blow it out of the water. And I think the property might have been listed at 135 and I bid like 115 or 110 with a 5% give back to me. Yeah. And I think I even made a 5% to the realtor and maybe 3% seller assist. So I made it a really sweet deal for myself. And then all that I did, this is crazy. I think I spent less than $1,000, went to the glass repair place, popped the window out, got that glass replaced. That was $150, cleaned and had to replace the hot water heater and the dishwasher. Because I don't know if your listeners know, if a place is sitting vacant for many years, two years, three years, chances are the hot water heater, if it's electric, and the dishwasher, just because of um, things getting dried out, like the gaskets and mm-hmm. the dishwasher get dried out, you have to replace those. So you have to budget for that stuff. Yep. But that's all we did is cleaned it, replaced the hot water heater, replaced the dishwasher, fixed the window. You left the teal carpets? We did. Nice. <laughs> yeah, we left those teal carpets, cleaned them up, left them in there, turned around and rented it. I think we rented that for two to $300 cash flow per month. And then waited for over a year and t- turned around and sold it just to, you know, reduce capital gains. And I think our profit on that sale was about $65,000 in one year. That's Plus, awesome. That wow. doesn't, and that doesn't include the positive cash flow every month. So I basically, yeah, somebody was paying the mortgage and how I'm getting all that equity appreciation. So how does financing a HUD house go? Like, do they take just it's conventional loans or nope, FHA? Completely the, completely the same. Awesome. That's yep. sweet. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my interpretation of HUD and what I've heard is that you can't buy as an investor when they are new. You have The HUD house right. has to sit for at least a month until an investor comes in. Yeah, it's usually, it might be a little less time than that. It might be the first two weeks where okay. they are, you know, the whole thing is designed, the whole program, right? It's designed for- People to you know, find affordable owner, housing. Exactly. Owner, occupant, affordable housing. But, you know, the problem becomes, and a lot of times in these foreclosed properties, it's worth it as an investor to wait because, now, now this is all caveat. I know most of the markets in the country are, absolutely on fire. So you, we, you know, you will be competing against end users, owner occupants, um, and you might not get a chance, but a lot of these properties are kind of beat up. And so a regular mortgage, conventional mortgage and the FHA mortgage won't even fly with a lot of the stuff that's wrong with these properties. You can't, you know, they just want the appraiser, the FHA appraiser will call out everything and, and, HUD's not going to fix any of that stuff. And same thing with the conventional mortgage. Like, you know, if there's no kitchen sink, you're not getting the house with a conventional mortgage. So, you know, unless you're doing some kind of crazy reno or some kind of side deal where you go in and fix stuff, but that, you know, I didn't just say that, but you know, those crazier things have happened is what I'm saying. But to your point, yes, this first couple of weeks are usually exclusively for owner occupants. And do you think that then it's the same, like, you have to claim residency for a year. Like if let's say someone's listening and they're, they're looking to get into their first house and maybe use it as an investment later, maybe not. But if you could get in and claim residency for that one year, can that turn into an investment property? How how does that work? There's, there's no rule 
unless unless um, Fannie Mae or HUD, you know, Fannie Mae is different, but unless HUD's changed rules, it's not that you can never turn it into an investment property. That's not my understanding. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any rules on that because it's that would be so restrictive. I think the rules around restrictions on becoming investment properties pretty much apply to when you're getting some kind of grants from your county or you're getting some kind of like, I don't know, uh, with farmer's home or what are we calling that now? Rural housing that kind of loan, I don't believe you're allowed to turn into an investment. The I'm USDA not, loan? Yeah. I'm not completely sure if you can do that or not. Okay. But but not with these HUD houses. There's no I've never seen any rules about um it's just that first first look period is only for owner occupants. So yeah. I think there's good and there's good deals. I mean, shoot, I just bid on one in California a couple of weeks ago and I thought I was being slick. I was going to put in a low ball offer in a hot market. What was I thinking? <laughs> yeah, I did not get it. <laughs> so, hey, at least you took your shot. That's all that exactly, matters. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I'm always hunting. So after that one, did you, um, like I know you, you had to go through and sell those properties. What ended up happening after you? Oh no, I kept going, Caleb. There were duplexes. I I then got interested in multifamilies because I then figured out that, you know, when my tenants don't pay their rent on a townhouse or whatever, then I'm on the hook for the whole mortgage. So then I started going to two doors in that same area where I um, raised my kids because it was a great desirable school district and there was not hardly any rental housing. There are a couple of apartment complexes, but almost really for the number of people that live there and the, uh, you know, the jobs that were in the community, there were not really good rentals, such, uh, rental, rentals available. So I started buying up duplexes then. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and um, I'm, I'm just trying to think. Both of them actually were off market when I bought them. I was really fortunate. One, I had a client call me and say she wanted to sell her house. And I was like, oh, I'll buy your house. Don't put it on the market. I'll buy it from you. You don't have to do anything. And the other one was from a local real estate investment group. I met a gal there and I didn't even, I did not even get it as like a really great deal, but it it was really a good cash flowing property. So that was my next, next adventure is getting into um, buy and holds duplexes. That's pretty nice to have a client come to you with a deal, just handing it right to you. That's yeah, I was thinking the convenient. same thing. <laughs> that would be nice to happen right now, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah, right. oh my gosh, I don't know. You you guys are telling me there's a triplex for sale somewhere. I'm like, is this in Pennsylvania? Because I didn't see it. <laughs> it's a secret. <laughs> yes, yeah, because it's a big secret. Because yeah. you you had me all pumped up after our conversation, and I was scouring, <laughs> and I didn't find anything. So. It's just a crazy time right now. Yeah. How how often are you currently checking the MLS for deals now? I I look, you know, I look every couple of days because and I'm in a, I'm in, now I'm in a couple of different markets, you know. Um uh, there's a sweet little spot down I mentioned to you guys I have a beach house and I use that as a, a short-term rental, you know, vacation rental. And this area is uh uh, well, it was undiscovered really until about a year, two years ago. Now, now think still, still the values are not where they could be for what you can um, make on it for a vacation rental because it is close to the beach. But the more interesting thing is there are plenty of people who live and work there who cannot find 
year-round rentals because everybody's got their house as a vacation rental. So that also presents opportunities for, you know, buy and hold real estate. I mean, you could you can buy a house in this area I'm speaking of for under $140,000. Now, I'm not talking about the ones right by the beach. I'm talking about within three quarters of a mile to the beach. But I'm, And I'm talking about housing for people who work at the schools or work at the, you know, whatever local businesses. And so you could you can buy it for 140 and below and three bedrooms, people will pay fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a month yeah. for the rent there. Yeah, and that fits our rule. I, I have a friend and his girlfriend, they live in Cape May and yeah. they just did their first flip and they're they're looking at their next one and you know, we, we were chopping it up and comparing numbers, you know, to short term because they're they're looking at houses that aren't right at the beach, but the Short-term rental in the Airbnb is still so strong. Like yeah. even with a ten-minute drive or you know a, a decent bike ride to the beach, oh, it just makes so. Like I was like, why wouldn't you just turn it into a long-term rental? You don't have to clean the sheets every day or every week, and you don't have to do this. And I know you hire someone else to do it, but sure. he, just that extra layer of stuff that you need to do. And they were like, well, this is what the short-term <laughs> rentals will gain us throughout the year. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. holy crap. Like, I couldn't yeah. believe it because it was like, why isn't everyone just doing this? Because no one, no one knows. I'm telling you, it was like, fit, I've had people where I put my stuff, my beach house up for rent on Facebook Marketplace for weekly, and people are contacting me. I would love to rent your house, you know, month, month you know, year round. And I'm like, now, why would I take right. X for a month when I can get X for six days? Right. Like, the same number like that's insane i know it is so yeah and they were even saying like because i was saying well isn't that only you know 10 weeks or 12 weeks and they're like nope you know people are running in the fall and they're running in the winter and they're like it it slows down but it's still like way better than a long-term tenant and what they could get to your point Right now, I'm. Uh, I I was hoping to maybe have uh, Easter at my beach house, but oh, sadly, it's rented. It's rented right now as we speak. It's a good It'll problem rent- to have. Exactly, yeah. it'll be rented over the Easter weekend, and then I think there's one day vacant, and it'll be rented again. So, yeah, and own. it's and it's March, guys. And right, I've had right. I've had people in there at Thanksgiving. I've had people in there at Christmas. I've had people there in January. Yeah, like, we just rented crazy. one in January. We we went to the beach and we're just like yeah we just want a weekend at the beach and it's cheap to us like for a weekend yeah. at the beach and you break it up amongst friends it's not expensive at all but exactly yeah it, i can imagine that makes the like the local rents in that area start going up as well like if every like available house is a short-term rental that's you know 10 times what you're paying for a long-term rental you know per day or whatever you know that's only gonna reduce the supply of housing it's for long term caleb it's insane i i actually had over probably just from one facebook marketplace not paid ad just my facebook marketplace not even boosted or anything i probably had 40 inquiries within a week for trying to have this for a long-term rental. So there's two things it's at play here, right? One, if somebody wants to be the Airbnb vacation rental landlord, there's Mm -hmm. that, there's that piece. And then there's somebody doesn't want to, you know, to Jake's point, don't, they don't want to bother with the sheets. They don't want to hire somebody. They want just, you know, something they can sit there and chug away, buy, buy something 20 minutes from the beach. You'll pay a lot less 
and you'll still have people clamoring to rent from you it's crazy crazy. how do you handle that process of cleaning the sheets and you know doing the turnover and um handling the interactions with the airbnb people like (laughs) i have a really funny story so i originally was just doing it you know all through the um, airbnb and, and verbo apps all the communication and i had a cleaning person um and then i personally you know, between my real estate business, um, being in leadership for my company and all the other stuff that I'm doing, I I decided like it was not making me happy anymore to have to do manage all that. So I have somebody who does it for me leverage. And that person is me on VRBO and is me on Airbnb. And they are much more patient and really hyper communicative to the guests. Um, you know, the biggest challenge down there at the beach is because there's so much demand for cleaners and handymen and contractors, any, anyone who's a contractor, handyman, painter, landscaper in the Philadelphia area, if you need extra side work, there are landlords at the beach who will happily pay you because there's just not enough laborers down there to handle all this business. So I'm sure that would increase the cleaning and handyman peoples that are already there their prices so like i'm curious what you know your turnaround cost is like you pay the cleaner you pay property manager like what's that kind of per transaction like how much of that is being eaten away yeah so i mean the property manager i think we just came up with um now this is not typical the property management fee is 20 percent, but that's not typical because it's one of my business partners and they're have, have agreed to just take it completely off my hands. Like do the bills, which is worth it. You know, if totally worth, totally worth at it. At your point, you know, exactly. I don't want people calling me. I mean, I used to just have a, um, you know, I used to just have a regular contractor lockbox on there and I've had client or customers couldn't figure out how to work the lockbox. So I'm on an airplane high over the United States and they're freaking out because they have the code. They can't work the box and they can't reach me because I'm in an airplane and my phone doesn't ring on the airplane. So, you know, make it easy and just put one of those um, digital code type things in. And then, so the property management, like is is about 20% and that's not typical. I think you can get lower. That's just like, you know, that's my, uh, blood fee for sure somebody basically taking it and I don't have to listen to it or handle it at all. And then my cleaning, the cleaning, I mean, it's actually high. I think it's super high, but that's what you have to pay down there because the supply and the demand, there's not a lot of cleaners and there's a ton of demand. So I'm paying 160 per turnover and I pay the guy an extra 20 bucks to make the beds. Mm-hmm. Because the cleaning people down the, down at the beach, they dictate what's going to get done. It's crazy. And it's like, all right, all right you know, the, I mean, that's just what you have to do. And and again, to any cleaning people out there, there's a killing to be made down there because I'm I'm not going to go down to the beach and clean the house. Right. You know, it doesn't make any sense. So that's always the biggest challenge is to make sure. I, I mean, I'm 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 the one you know, one person who was using, I, I didn't have to go out and buy bleach last March. Let's just say that. Cause <laughs> I have already completely always been, compl- I've been always cleaning with bleach the whole time, my whole life. And so to make sure you get a great cleaner, who's going to do the job that you expect. And, you know, especially during COVID, we want to make sure that somebody is going insane and cleaning with bleach and, you know, make sure everything's 
super sparkly. Yeah, and, it's even right. more important now than ever. And exactly, I did want to ask you, like, we all know, like, what the best case scenario looks like for rentals. You know, you don't hear anything from them. You get paid. You know, you know, it's just over. I want to uh, know, like, what's your worst case scenario that you've had with uh, any tenants? If I mean, even if you had any with the short term. Oh my gosh! Well, my best story, my short term rental guy. I don't know what this guy's problem was last summer. I, I just, I still don't know what his problem was, but as soon as he got there, you, you can tell some people are going to be high maintenance right away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my house, I bought it. I bought it as a, uh, it was a foreclosure. It was a Fannie Mae foreclosure and I bought it in 2014 and completely renovated for as if I were going to be living there. Not, I didn't renovate it for short-term rental. So I've got hickory hardwood floors. I've got, um, you know, a granite granite countertop, stainless steel appliances, you know, the high-end stackable washer and dryer, brand new HVAC, everything. So I don't know, this guy just wasn't happy as soon as he got there. And we could tell, the property manager and I could tell, like, this guy's not happy. Unfortunately, it was during COVID. And I don't know if anybody noticed, but Airbnb cut their staff massively during COVID. So we were trying to find, we were like, we, we want to help you find a place that you're going to love. You're not happy. Let's let you move on to somewhere else. We reach Airbnb, try to, try to get them to help us relocate this guy. <laughs> they respond out of his one week stay. They respond five days later. We sent the, <laughs> seriously, we sent the cleaner back within less than 24 hours we sent um, another business partner down to try to like, you know, hey, ch- check out, see what we can do to make these people happy. But we were willing to let them out and not keep their money and find them another place. They, st- they didn't move on. We told them we would refund their money completely. Didn't leave. They never left. They stayed the entire seven days. They complained the whole time. And then they asked for their money back from Airbnb after they wouldn't leave. And I was like, I was like, so you got a free vacation. But you know what, guys, I believe in karma. So I'm sure that that miserable guy is somewhere out in the world. And I just broke down today. (laughs) I I hope it broke down every month this year. But I I'm I'm just thankful not to be that guy. You know, so that's my that was like my worst story. Um, you know, nobody trashed it or anything. But that's like a week, you know what I mean? Like if it was rented the other three weeks, it's you're still positive. Yeah, but I just really you know, that's when that's when I knew I had to start paying my property manager more because I don't even want those phone calls. Right. I just don't want them now. Now I will tell you that there are people who are playing this game really super smart, and they're using, um, you know, hand selected virtual assistants to do all mm-hmm. that communication. Yeah. I mean, I've I've talked to people in my network who have completely renovated properties in other states using virtual assistants. I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you're doing it, but that's amazing. I guess I'm a little too hands on. But that was my that I mean, if that's the worst story, my other my other long term rental story was I I rented one of my duplexes. My best friend lived on one side and this couple lived on the other. And they were they were told no pup, no dogs. And they had trouble paying their rent on time. And so like they always had a story as why they didn't pay their rent on time every month, even though they both worked Um, and good jobs, local pharmaceutical company. So one year at Christmas time, I find out they don't pay their rent on time. It's always, you know, late fees and having to hound them for their rent. And then the best friend lives next door and tells me she hears a puppy barking all day and all night. No one's home. So oh, no. it's January 6th and I don't have my rent yet. 
It's due on the first. And so I'm crazy and I go knock on the door and the guy opens the door and all of a sudden he sees it. It's me. And the puppy's trying to run out the door and he quicks trying to shut the door. So I don't see the puppy. I'm like, you're snagged, dude. Where's my rent? This is like seven months in a row. You're not paying the rent on time. And is that a dog? Is that your dog? So I had to give them the heave ho. Did you have to go through the actual full eviction process or? Yeah. Yes, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I'm sure they ruled in your favor. They violated all your terms, but still it's costly. Well, you guys know, we talked about this around the table the other night that I will not invest in places that are ridiculously tenant friendly. I just won't do it. I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to gouge anybody, but if I have people living in my house for free for too long, it's going to really bother me. So I don't buy in places. There are certain cities and anybody can, you know, you want to know more, contact me offline, <laughs> Susie T at EXP Realty. There's just cities I will not purchase in because the laws are so geared to the tenant. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like if the tenant's staying in a house for free, it, it's just theft. Like, you know, it's it's yeah. clear cut. And recently with the moratoriums and all that, it's just people are at a mass scale just getting away with theft. So it's, I could 100% agree to stay out of those cities. And I, yeah. I did want to go back in time a little bit. You know, you have a, a unique perspective compared to us where since you've been in in this in the real estate game for so long, I was curious how the market looked pre and post 2008 collapse. Like how were things like before the huge run up and then like what did you see change and like for like the little people like you know, the people who aren't like the massive corporations who, you know, went under but you know, your average day-to-day investors Well, you want to know what it looked like before the global financial crisis? It looked just like it does right now. Ew. (laughs) (laughs) You know this multiple offers situation? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, you guys, let me digress really quickly. I told you you got me all fired up to find something to buy because it's my illness at this point in time. Like other girls like to go shopping and they, you know, they're Amazon, they get primnesia or they're at the mall all the time. Like, oh, I'm not a big shopper, but I like to buy big things. So I was out scouring, found something on the MLS that looked interesting, text the agent and said, hey, I want to set an appointment. And I can't because all the appointments are blocked out. This was yesterday. And she said, this house went on the market in our area on Friday. It was under $200,000. Friday, it went on the market yesterday. She had 21 offers in hand. Holy crap. So this is what the market looked like before the global financial crisis. What's different is, and people, you know, I'll debate anybody. People are like, it's a big bubble and everything's going to happen again. Now we fixed our mortgage problem that we had back then. They would lend money. Literally, you guys, I would get pamphlets in my real estate mailbox. I couldn't even understand. There was like new construction. You can buy this new house with 125%. I'm like, what, what does that even mean? I don't, I don't understand this. Hmm. You could buy the house and get 25%, like 25% more money back at the table. Uh, what? And that was with <laughs> so, all the arm. Oh, yeah. The negative. Yeah. yeah. So you had your pick, pick a pay plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, like, uh, oh, you'll pay zero interest for this month. And then like next yeah. month, it's going to be a, a, a million. Lot more. <laughs> exactly. Well, what people didn't realize is that, you know, every month you, you chose that minimum payment, your principal was actually going up. That's crazy. And, and the other thing people didn't realize is those loans, most of them had, there was prepayment penalties on loans back then. Those have gone away. 
you know, the big game was the, the whole theory. The, I remember the first time I heard of this, um, my mortgage guy at the time talked to me about these hybrid mortgages. And I was like, well, I, I don't understand. And he said, well, it started in California because it was a market just like we're experiencing right now where everything is, you know, everybody's bidding $100,000, $150,000 over the next one. And, you know, peop- there, there needs to be a mortgage that adjusts for those crazy run-ups of value. And so this was this thing that came out, um, World Mortgage, where are you today? That was one of the main companies that used to do it. But so that, I don't, I don't believe we're going to have a bubble. I believe we're in a really hot market, but I don't believe we're going to have that same bubble that we had the last time because you still have to have a pulse. And really, you know, even though they say there's 500 credit score purchasing power. Now, I, I think most of these mortgage companies really want you to be at 680 and above right. to get a mortgage, give up plasma, DNA, a firstborn, like <laughs> things have changed. Yeah. And, and people have equity. We're not living, you know, we're not living so thin on, you know, our mortgage amount to the equity. So uh, I do, I will be interested to see if the foreclosures go through. However, the thing that's different now is just, just like Caleb was saying, um, no, I'm sorry, Jake, you were saying it the other night, you're walking around neighborhoods looking at the houses, right? And seeing who owns what. Yeah. So much more information at our fingertips right now. So you can walk up to a house with an app and find out how much people, how much do people owe on the property. Right. And so if I'm an investor and houses are going, you know, starting to get their, uh, you know, listed for foreclosure, I'm going to interrupt that sale process. I'm going to go right knock on their door and offer them some money for it to help them out. Right. And there's so many of us investors out there and the information is out in the public domain now, not locked up in private like it used to be. Absolutely. So, and with that information on top of all the data we have from the 08 collapse where like yeah. we could tell exactly what happened where they took the like the like the insured mortgages and then falsely rated them AAA, even though they didn't meet any of the criteria. And it was just because it was supply and demand with the rating agencies. It was like, well, if you don't give us AAA, we'll go down the street and get one. And then it created this just massive pile of like just dog shit that then was then traded on the open market and whole companies bet like all their books on it. Yeah. Once it finally like showed that all the underlying mortgages were like, like a large percent were bad, it just came down. And a lot of people now are, are afraid of, you know, what came out of that. Like when I'm sure mortgage brokers now are constantly asked all the time, like, is my rate adjustable? Like, am I going to get yeah. absolutely screwed one day? So, you know, people are a little bit more diligent yeah. after seeing what happens, you know, only... 12 years ago now and keeping that in the back of their mind and yeah well no one no one who was alive then is going to forget it and really like you guys generation like i know that a lot of young people um were were reluctant to even buy houses because they saw how many people lost houses but and the other thing two other things that are completely different and i forget the other one um the one is that the appraisers, even I, I, I bought a house in 2005 at the beach, new construction. I'm a professional. I look at the values and I'm looking at what I'm paying in a cookie cutter building and absolute cookie cutter. It was 12, I think it was 12 units and all of them were exactly the same, except for the end units were a little bit bigger. And I'm looking at the value that they're asking for the one that I'm paying for. And it's $40,000 higher than the last one. And I'm going like, how is that even possible when, you know, it's just not even possible. But I said to myself, well, it'll get caught in the appraisal and then, and then we'll renegotiate. <laughs> but guess what? 
that didn't happen. Appraisals are scams. The appraisers were part of the system that did all that too. And that, that has come, uh, you know, completely unbundled. In fact, one of my buyers recently was so bummed that her property that she's purchasing came in at the, she, she was betting me. She's like, what do you think the value is going to come in at? And I said, the purchase price. (laughs) And she said, well, I think it's, she said, I think it's going to come in $5,000 higher. I was like, okay. So when she got the appraisal, she said, guess, guess what? It, she said, you win. And I'm like, yeah, the appraisers are not pumping values anymore because that, that was a bad, bad scene. And really, I, I feel like between the mortgage companies and the appraisers, all of this could have been avoided. And then, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I wanted to talk about Bank of America, but I won't make any slanderous statements. Or <laughs> I won't make it. any libelous statements. Okay. Uh, there were people that profited. I'm just going to say there were companies that profited pre and post the global financial crisis. And uh, the other thing about those adjustables, those, um, you know, those, those, those were all front end loaded for profit. And that's not my idea. A mortgage person told me that they sort of kind of could predict what was going to happen with those pick and pay, pick a payment negative amortization loans, but all the profit was in, in the first 36 months of the loan. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you're uh, handing somebody with a 450 credit score, uh, you know, a loan for 500,000, it's going to be pretty easy to see, like, you know, what, what most likely is going to happen there, you know, if their income yeah. is so low. And yeah, the, it was it was a whole like combination of variables there. And like you said, the appraisers, if they had just came in and all they got to do really at the end of the day is just justify the list price. Like, is the bank over leveraging on this house? Like, if we take this house back, is it going to be able to pay off the loan? Like, that's really what it comes right. down to not about like oh let's get this for as high as we can yeah that's yeah. just yeah recipe for disaster it was, I, I don't think we'll i don't think we'll experience anything like that again unless regulations go completely wild because it was the wild west mm-hmm. it was literally like the wild west meets las vegas there was a lot of there was a lot of money made during that time right like yep. that's why that guy wrote the the big short I was um, curious then, kind of your thoughts. You know, you saw both both markets, and I, I totally agree with you that we're not heading in that same direction because the circumstances are so different. So, what I'm curious about is with your crystal ball. You know, what are you actually seeing happen when all this stimulus stops, all this fake printing of money that's not there? When all that stops and we go back to normal, like we're due for a recession. It's totally different than 2005 2008 it's it's a totally different scenario but like we're due for the the hot market to stop we're due for interest rates i think to go back up but what what do you think is kind of in the trajectory like what do you think will actually happen well i mean right now you know right now feels exactly like it did after the global financial crisis i i feels exactly like quantitative easing right we're if if the government doesn't print a bunch of money um, then, then the economy would be doing something different. Right. Um, and it does have that same kind of feeling where we're kind of propped up. The best part about this propping is this time it's not just, you know, the American taxpayer taxpayers socializing the debt of the big banks who are gambling. So I love that the people are, you know, getting the quantitative easing this this time. Um, but I do think sooner or later, someone's going to have to pay the piper. And so I can honestly, and I was telling you guys the other night, people think the market is just on fire everywhere. And that's absolutely not true. I am very fortunate to be in business with 49,000 other agents 
in one company. And so, and I have my license in four states. So I get to see and get to speak with agents in different markets. What states are you licensed in? Yeah. So I'm a, a broker in Pennsylvania, Florida, and California. And I also have my salesperson's license in New Jersey. Oh, cool. That's yeah. awesome. And, yeah. And so, and, but I'm, I, I, you know, I have a bunch of agents in my group and, you know, during this p- cities are uh, under duress right now, like big cities. Somebody asked me the other day, an agent who's just getting back in the game. They said, Hey Susie, why are the days on market in center city Philadelphia so long? And I was like, well, because no one wants know, to be there. <laughs> nobody wants to, be, and nobody wants to be living on top of other people right now. Um, so it's a great time to buy in Philadelphia. It's a great time to buy in New York City. New York City is. I'm. I'm trying to get in that market because it's not going to stay this way forever. Right. Um, but and so and then the other thing is for your listeners, great places to buy right now: multifamily, multifamily in places that are tenant friendly. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the values are dropping in those places because here you have maybe a little bit of over leveraged um, landlords and you have tenants who don't have to pay and you can't evict them right. reg- regardless, especially in those tenant friendly places. Um, those people are selling their their prices are almost starting to look fire sale So you've already got this going on. Personally, like my my thought process and why I've stayed away from the cities and and more tenant friendly areas is for something like this to happen again. Like, so now we open the door on like, Oh my word, a new strain of something comes out, you know, you don't have to go to work and you don't have to pay your mortgage. And we're, I feel at least my age demographic is like all on board with it. So, and that's, that's creating that, that next generation of a lot of people under that same pretense that's you know making it a lot more risky and like where where you go somewhere less tenant friendly and more like yeah you got to pay your rent you know it money just doesn't appear from anywhere and like you you compare those two and sure you can get a great deal in these cities and like i i totally get that like real estate you it's risk versus reward. You know, you're right. If you take that risk, you're going to see a high reward. But when we're seeing medium reward in a safer area, you know, yeah. what, what's your personal opinion well, you pay on a that? higher price for that as well. Like the multifamilies near us are way up in value. Right. Like yeah. they're right. The return, the monthly return, like the 1% rule on most of these places, like some places are like almost 0.5%, which is just insane. Yeah. Like that's yeah. so. Right. And so I guess the best way to hedge on the, you know, if you're, if you're risk averse, like I am, the best way to hedge is to do a little homework on the demographic, because what I find is you're going to, you're going to have tenants who are professional, professional tenants. Mm -hmm, I mean, not mm -hmm. professional tenants, but professional people who are not, you know, they have a 750 above credit score. They're not, they're not going to do anything to hurt themselves. Right. And, and so you just want to be really, if you want to go into those areas, because there's opportunity there, you just make sure your tenant screening process is really on point and look for, you know, um, people with, if you want to be really, you know, 800 credit scores and, you know, having multiple years at the same job, you just go a little heavier on that kind of 
that kind of thing. And I think you can do a good job. Yeah, especially like maybe taking, you know, a month or two of no rent at the place just to make sure you get that better tenant. Like we're so focused on yep. getting turnaround done so fast that, you know, we just take what we can get because it's a good pool here. But in that situation, yeah, you're right. You want to just really st- make sure you get a good tenant because if you get a bad one with these laws that are protecting them, you can have them, you know, for a long time and not see a dime from them. So that two month you know, loss is worth a lot more in the long run with that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, like, so where what my crystal ball says, at some point, people are going to have to start paying their rent. And at some point, people are going to have to start paying their mortgages again. I don't know what people's forbearance agreements are going to look like. But, you know, if people don't get back in their jobs, I'm talking about people who have mortgages and, and don't have, you know, their jobs aren't coming back then those houses are going to go up for sale. But again, here's the difference. It just feels so different than the last time. I don't, I cannot tell you, I think in my career from 1999 to the global financial crisis, 2008, I maybe had three cash buyers in that whole time. Everybody was getting a mortgage. Now everybody's paying cash. I mean, it's just crazy. There's cash deals or people putting a ton of money down. So I just don't know if this forbearance is going to trickle into another foreclosure glut. I just don't feel like it is. Do you think, though, that so I know personally that a lot of these cash buyers are, you know, listening to other podcasts, listening to bigger pockets and listening to, oh, you know, everyone's just over leveraging themselves to the grave on the hopes of the appreciation and doing the burr and, you know, it, yeah, they're paying cash, but it's not their cash. Right. So, like, do you th- can you see that that catching up? Like, when when this drops and everyone gets caught with their pants down from oh, I, I'm stuck with this 10, 12 percent yeah. interest rate, and now it's not appraising. Yeah, you know, like, can, do you think that that could be a real thing that happens? Like, wh- when all those guys, that's going to drop prices. People are going to try to get out with anything. Cool. Well, I mean, for our sake, I hope that does happen. But <laughs> right, I know, me too. But that, it, but I mean, I like no, the, I'm not wishing anything bad to anyone in the audience. Right. I'm just saying it's been a long time since there's been a, any, you know, a lot of skin in the in the deal. Like it's it's been tough, really. Right. And you got to look at the percentage of people, you know, doing that. If you have, you know, how many percent of the market, the total housing market are doing burrs versus how many people right. are just going conventional financing and or you know they have a way to get a lot of money you know up front to make that cash offer like there's a lot less like investors than there are you know single single family I, buyers i agree with you caleb i think you know i also work in the san francisco bay, bay area market and you know it's really hard for investors there because you might find something that needs a whole ton of work and you're competing against a retail buyer there. They'll pay, they'll pay, you know, you, you and that person are going to pay retail pricing. Nobody's, you know, they're paying the ARV value for stuff right. because of future appreciation. And so, right. you know, I don't know. I just don't, I know people have been talking about a crash. I just see so much money out there versus 2005, six, seven. People were definitely borrowing, you know, what's, what's the old saying, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Like I know people doing crazy stuff on credit cards, that stuff is all gone. Like 
I don't know. There's just so much more, there's so much more money right now. And I'm sorry to anybody out there who doesn't, you know, is not also feeling that way. It may be just in the markets that I'm working in, but I just see, you know, like again, yesterday, 21 offers on a property in three days. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of money floating out there. People have buying power. We were on the last episode talking with a mortgage broker and he was bringing up how there were talks you know, from the federal government looking at subsidizing first-time home buyers to actually provide them the money to, you know, get in and buy the houses, not just a low down payment, but just to straight up give them money for it. And I don't know if that's still like happening or not, because Biden's all about the the stimmies. So, you know, it wasn't something that surprised us they would be considering. And I think that if these, like you mentioned, the question, Jake, you had earlier was when they stopped you know, the stimulus, I think it's a question of if at this point, because they just keep talking about new and like next rollouts over and over again for different sectors. And, you know, they're talking about another one now. So I think this could go a lot longer than what we see. And, you know, everybody on the Fed keeps saying inflation is, you know, non-existent. It's just, we're not seeing it. And, you know, we talked about that everyone in the whole world's printing money at the same rate right now. So it's just kind of, you know, getting screwed up altogether. So it's not, you know, right in our faces now. So but like, I, we're, we're not seeing inflation, but at the same time, we're seeing 21 offers in three days on a... And, that, and that's not inflation? Right, exactly. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. that is inflation. If you're not seeing inflation, it's right there. And, but going back to, to what I lost my train of thought on was I have a friend who just bought a house with a cash, he, as a cash buyer, as a cash offer. Yeah. And then in the interim got financing. Wow. And when I read the the agreement of sale, like it's in there. Like you can you can find financing in between when this is executed and settlement. So if you're able to do that, I mean, like I don't know if he just, you know, he talked to his mortgage guy and he said that we could do this and and that's how they did it, but still like do you think more people know that? Have you ever heard of people doing that? I'm sure you well, you can do that. And we do that, you know, that's more. And so I love to talk about, and I hate to talk about this at the same time. We're, we're, you know, Philly area people, but I sell in California and I've been selling there for seven years and actual lenders in California will write an approval that is like cash because they they're getting all of, they get all of the documentation ahead of time before they even write a pre-approval and they have the DNA and the plasma and the firstborn child. <laughs> yeah. And so they and but the only trick with all that is if your mortgage doesn't go through, you're still on the hook to buy the property or Absolutely. you lose your deposit. Yep. And so, you know, that's I mean, I, this is the hardest time to be a buyer because, for example, just a few weeks ago, about four weeks ago, I wrote an offer for my best friend and she's hasn't been a homeowner for a few years. She wanted a mortgage contingency and an inspection contingency and an appraisal contingency with an escalation clause, meaning she knew she was competing. And we wrote an addendum that said, we're going to pay $1,500 higher than the last highest bona fide offer up Up to to, a number, up to something that was $20,000 higher than the list price. But you know what? It didn't matter because when you put the appraisal contingency in there, it just kind of blows that thing right out of the water. It negates it. It's like, you know, makes, makes that escalation go away. And so for me to advise my buyers right now to waive all those things, 
Then we get into a problem as a real estate agent. I have a fiduciary responsibility to my clients. You have to do what's best for them. And if that's not what's best for them, they should have an inspection, but that's yeah, not but, what but is. They, but they still want the house, right? Exactly. So, so is that what is getting the house what's best for them or is doing right. all the right steps? That That's a great question. What, I like to, and I like to explain it to all, all of it to them and let them decide. But if my client was saying, I'm going to offer cash, but I'm actually getting a mortgage. I would want them to understand the ramifications. Like you can be sued. You will lose your deposit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's a little scary. And I just don't like to do business that way either because right. the agent agent on the other side of the table, <laughs> we still have to do business together in the area. So yeah. we don't want to, we don't want to make enemies by doing shady things like that. And then having our buyer get cold feet or God forbid, they put together something like you talked about, right? They bid cash. And then they're going to get financing. What if they lose their job a week mm -hmm. before? Yeah, you know, the these, thing. things, these things happen. I have been at the walkthrough for a property, walkthrough the day before closing, and the mortgage guy calls me, hey, we can't do the mortgage. What? Mm -hmm. We have 18 hours till we have to sit around the table and exchange money and keys. And he said, nope. Your buyer opened your buyer opened a furniture credit card oh, for no. Raymore and Flanagan. And even if he's financially qualified, he lied on that thing and said he didn't have any credit, so we can't do the mortgage. I was oh, like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill him. But <laughs> Getting ready happened. for the new house by screwing up your financing. <laughs> exactly. It's, I, call it the, uh, I call it the Ten Commandments of buying a house. Do not open any new credit no matter what. Do not close any credit. Once you get your, more, once you get your credit report pulled, don't do anything to make it change between now and closing. Yeah. So, you know, anything can happen. So that cash and then turning into financing, that's, that's, I'm, I'm, I mentioned I was risk averse. Yeah. When, when I do a deal, I want it to be solid, no matter if I'm buying a property or somebody else's. But so, so you mentioned like in California, their lenders are offering something saying like, look, you're, you're good for it. Yeah. Have you seen something like that in PA? I haven't, you know, mm -hmm. we do things, we do things a little differently here and these are national um, lenders, by the way, the one off the top of my head is Chase. They they offer this, you know, it's like this letter is as good as cash because they have gone up the buyer's financials with a fine tooth comb and they know everything about the buyer. And, you know, usually too, the other thing that we do differently in California is the closing because they're doing all the work up front. They have all that stuff. All they're waiting for is, you know, an appraisal on the property or whatever. And it's not contingent. They can close in seven to 10 business days. Mm. For on a mortgage, which is unheard of here. Like here, you try to get the title company to close in 30 days and they want to pay, they want to charge you a rush fee. Right. Like I was like, is that rushing? We do this in <laughs> we I've had closing in three days in California. So wow. um it's a different way of doing business. But that's all. If that's through Chase and you go through Chase here, like I'm just trying to like think of because that I feel like that letter is gold. If if we it, were able to obtain that, you know. We have all of our financials in order. The credit's you need, good. You need to insist your buyers, your buyers here need to go to their banks and ask for these things. Because what happens is- I'm talking about me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, well, you're that person, right? And yeah, you should yeah. go to your bank and say, that, you know, they do, you're, this is a national company. This is how they do it there. Why can't we do it this way here? It's mm -hmm. just really just customary here. Right. And I think what happened in California is the money is so big the mm -hmm. banks don't want to not be competitive. So in order to ha attract the clients, because the clients will go who will help them be competitive, right? 
And so the banks, the banks here need to be a little bit more, um, you know, it's 2021. And if you have all, if someone's credit report and you have their tax returns and you have their bank statements and you have their, you know, employment agreements and all this different stuff, why does it take 45 days to close a deal? Mm -hmm. That's just the custom here. That's all. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you're the customer for these financial institutions. Like they're your, like they're the service providing to you, so you get right. to choose. So they want to be competitive with each other. So that's, you know, we've been talking about that contacting the banks around you, trying to find like what financial packages work best for like whatever strategy, low down payments, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff to try and find it. And I, d- I did want to get more into like the difference in Cali and, and PA. Have you bought? any rentals in California before? Well, no, you know what I mentioned about the tenant friendly Mm -hmm. situation and, and, uh, and plus the money is way bigger there. So I have a little flip project that's about to go on the market in the East. It's called the East Bay. It's San Francisco. San Francisco is the city and then the Bay is the Bay and it's on the other side of the Bay. So I haven't done any rentals there. I've represented rentals there. Um, but I haven't, you know, personally, but I'm on the hunt right now you, because I told you that the, the cap rates in California are starting to look like Pennsylvania cap rates. I was like, okay, okay, you can actually start to make a little bit of money here. So not just buy for, as we talked about, just appreciation. Right. The other night we talked about that that one that got away in California, oh, and that's a great story. I was hoping you could talk about it. Is it a great story? It is. <laughs> It is. Feel, when I tell it, I don't feel good. It's awfully terrible. It's like, it's awfully great. <laughs> it's tantalizing. So <laughs> what we were talking about for the audience, what we were talking about is, you know, there's, there's always deals in every market. And I'm, I'm here to tell you the one duplex that I bought that I told you the client came to me, that was 2005. And that was the height of the height. And I still got a great deal. This particular property that I want to cry about is Susie uh, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, not understanding how to get private money together uh, and also not really spending a lot of time focusing on it. Um, I, I guess I thought I always had to buy things the traditional way with a mortgage, you know, a regular, you know, Wells Fargo or, you know, Bank of America, somebody, you know, nationally known. So I didn't have my private money situation locked down. And believe me, the most valuable part of this story is that I got my private money situation understood now. So I was working in San Francisco and uh, a a colleague at the office knew that I lived across the bridge in Marin County. It's right across the Golden Gate Bridge. And she was, you know, pregnant with a baby at the time. And she said, you know, I don't want to go across the bridge to take this listing. Do you want to take this listing? And plus, (laughs) I don't know, this place has bad juju. And I was like, sure, I'll take this listing. So we're talking about a town called Sausalito, right on San Francisco Bay. Lovely, lovely place. And this was a townhome that had some uh, deferred maintenance due to the fact that the owner was no longer alive. <laughs> and uh, the owner was no longer alive because he had a guy who was sort of a drifter or something who was acting as a tenant in this, maybe in the a room or the garage or something. And uh, the tenant didn't like it when this, the owner told him he had to move out because they were going to put the place up for rent all completely. Anyway, bad things happened there. Uh, the one guy, the, the tenant did, in fact, allegedly, was never taken to court, allegedly killed the other guy. 
And so I end up with this crazy property with, you know, in California, it's a big thing. If someone dies on the property, you must disclose it in your seller's disclosure. So right off the bat, I had to, you know, disclose that it was really a well-publicized event. Um, what happened between the two gentlemen, because the cops came and there was an eight hour standoff. So here I go with this really significantly uh, stigmatized property. We call them stigmatized properties in real estate. And uh, it's got all the stuff the way it was the day that this event happened. And it's also missing the stairs up to the front door. So I get this listing and um, I'm pricing it, you know, comparably with all these things working against it. And so I think I took the listing at 650. Um, the last one sold for, uh, you know, fixed up, sold for about, I think I said it was about 800. But, you know, this is, this is significant. He's got a lot of work to do. And it's, oh, you, you have to come in through a six foot ladder down the patio door and sneak in through the back door to even look at this place. There's no way to even look at it. It's literally like, I, I would have to turn away people. You want to show it? You have high heels on. No, you can't show it because you literally have to walk up a dirt path, climb down a, a six foot ladder into the patio to even be able to see this crazy property. That's wild. So the long and short of this story, which always makes me feel bad, is I didn't know anything about private money. I could have bought this property from the sellers directly and taken it off their hands. This is the gentleman's estate. And with wiping my commission away, it probably would have been about $615,000. Um, two the two people that bought it paid cash. I think the number was six seventy five, dollars And they did all the work. Uh, they bought, they, we, we closed on it in May, and they put it back on the market in September for $910,000. Wow. And I priced out the repairs to be 35,000 in all to in all totaled. Wow, what a that's a I good know. one. Yeah, I know, but it's such a crazy story like Yeah, the guy the carpet was missing yeah. where they were Oh, yeah, stuff. yeah, I was telling you guys where the, you know, the the house looked exactly the same way as it did except for the day that the bad thing went down and I guess the police like pulled the carpet out and you know in just that area but I had people calling me screaming at me for not disclosing in the MLS that you know the full details of what happened <laughs> and it's like well I have a certain level of disclosure I have to give but I mean, they were like, I had to throw my shoes away because I walked through that house. I, was like, it's not like I, I wouldn't have gone in there if it was like really like that, you know, yeah. but, but so, you know, you will, and, and that's a really sad, I mean, it's a sad, sad story. And I'm, I'm in no way making light of what happened to, you know, the, the nice man who was running to the other person's just to be, just to say that sometimes you're going to find a deal that's a screaming deal because of really awful stuff. And, you know, there's money, there's, there is money in there. And I just, the sad part for me was that I just couldn't figure it out at the time, how to make it happen. So I wonder in California, do you have to disclose to rentals about that kind of stuff? Like you know what? To, to we have so much disclosure in California. I would say I, I don't have the rental disclosures in front of me, but I'm going to say yes. Right. Yes. Yes. We have, um, you know, um, uh, Jacob is, is listed, you know, he's an agent, right? You're an agent. And so, you know, what, a, what a contract looks like in California, our, our contracts, our full contract packages can be 700 pages long for a rental. No, no, oh, no. Uh, for for, yeah, but yeah, a yeah. rental, a rental, our rental pages is still unreal <laughs> yeah, for anything. Our, our rental, our rental agreements and all the disclosures for that are still longer than PAs, like full purchase contract stuff. Wow. For sure. Wow. Yeah, we have, a, you know, and and it's good, right? We want an informed 
citizenry. We want them to be informed. So yeah, I've seen some like tenant leases, like, you know, on the seller disclosure of some houses around this area. And they're like one page. They're just like <laughs> sign here to rent. And, like, here's the keys. And like, <laughs> that was <Yeah>. it. <laughs> like exactly. shuffle the driveway. That's all I want. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so, but it's, you know, real estate's, it's just so fun. It's super interesting. And, and yeah, after my first, after my first one, I've sort of clearly become a little bit addicted. I'm always hunting. So you guys had me hunting all over our area the other day, coming up empty. I even started looking at the for sale by owners on Zillow. They're, <laughs> they're just real estate agents hiding themselves as, as for sale by owners. Absolutely. Just a bunch yeah, of frauds. Exactly. So, so currently I know, we talked about your one in Schwanksville. Yeah. That's a really cool return and stuff. And you still, what are all the the places that you're currently holding, like, as of right now? Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, right now, I just have that one in Schwanksville. And then I have the beach house, uh, which we talked about before. Mm. And then I have the fix and flip that I did um, doing in California, which was just really mostly a cosmetic fix and flip on believe it or not on a mobile home because, oh awesome i like because that because some some people have that as a niche yeah. um I, ha- I have a i have a guy friend out there in california who does that and that's his niche and you can really make ridiculous money on that and you know to just just to help you understand though like the mobile homes here in our area in pa like i've seen them as low as 60,000 40,000 yeah this this neighborhood where I have this flip, the houses go really the old old ones are like one forty, but the new ones are three fifty. Wow! Yeah, it's an expensive like, mobile home. Mobile homes in the Bay Area are they run generally between three to four hundred thousand dollars. And so that's mainly just the land that it's sitting on, correct? Because the the mobile homes aren't really an appreciating asset. It's the land and they don't own the land. Oh, they don't own the land. It's <laughs> that just sucks. It's crazy, right? It's That's totally so crazy. crazy. They don't own it for that much money. It is, yeah. So, and so I decided to, you know, be a little, um, what do I want to say, conservative and do that as my first Bay Area project. Yeah, no, that's a. I would probably do the same thing. That's awesome. You know, I tell I tell you if anyone anyone listening is I am very you know no one's going to do everything I do because I'm so risk averse. So I like to take baby steps when I do something, especially in a new market. Mm-hmm. And so I because I I and and this is what was so funny. The lady who taught who cracked the code on private money for me. We met for coffee. This is a lady who she lends private money and she's been a fix and flipper for years and has been using other people's money for a long time. And when I t- when I started talking to her about how to do it and I told her, you know, these are the properties that I flip. These were my buy and holds. And she goes, tell me about one that you lost on. And when I told her the one, you know, one house that I ended up, remember the beach house I told you that uh, the appraiser yeah. said it was it was new construction? Well, yeah, uh, that ended up being a short sale during the global financial crisis mm. because overnight it lost $150,000 oh, in value. Word. Yeah. Wow. And so, and she wanted to know that I had she's like, most lenders will want to know that you've got that under your belt, right. that you've actually lost and and got burned 
And it was a really good lesson for me because I will, A, never believe what the appraiser says. I'm going to do my own due diligence on the values. And, mm-hmm. and B, why I, I was conservative to begin with. But now I'm, I, look at, I look at the deal from, I always talk about like holding it up like a prism to the light. And I'm going to look at it from every angle mm-hmm. before I actually go through with it. And so, and that's what I did with this um, mobile home. You know, I wanted to start with something small and not super risky. And, you know, when, when it's all said and done, I'm probably only going to make $35,000. Only $35,000. That's a lot of people make that in a year. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's not the 300 that I could have right. made on that other deal. Right, but, right, you know. right. No, um, I, I totally but, you know, agree. But at least like you, to your point earlier, when you were talking about people, you know, with, caught with their pants down when all this changes, I do know people who have borrowed that private money and now, and they were doing renos and fix and flips in the city and they're kind of stuck holding the bag right now. Right. Yeah. And so I don't ever want to be in that position. Right. You know, I'll get, I got burned that one time. That's one, once is enough for me. But then again, if you can break even on renting it with the payments and stuff like that, like, and yeah. you can hold it out till they inevitably go back up. That's kind of yeah. like the whole thing that I feel like everyone learned from 2008 is like, it'll get better. You just got to yep. sit it out. And it's, if you take the loss cyclical. now, you know, you're stuck with taking that loss. If you hold on to it, it things can get better. So, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but yeah, so, so Schwanksville. Yeah. Let's, uh, I, you got it for such a ridiculously <laughs> low number. I, it's so stupid. Yeah, brag about it. <laughs> no, my gosh. It's so funny. It's just so funny. So, you know, I live in both places. I live in Pennsylvania and I live in California part-time. And I had been um, just renting a house that I was going to buy. And it was a duplex. And like I mentioned to you guys the other night, I was all set to buy it. And then I found that uh, I, was, I was actually trying to do a, a challenge, the tax assessment. And I was doing my homework for that to put together the packet to challenge with the county. And I pulled the public record and looked at the zoning and I was about three weeks, four weeks away from closing on this property. And I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't a duplex. In God's name, do I need a 4,000 square foot two unit that I can't rent out the other unit? So um, I went back to the drawing board and was just looking in the MLS for properties. And I just searched, you know, all of Montgomery County ruling out two neighborhoods that I, two, two cities that I won't invest in back to that tenant thing. And uh, no, no, we won't say them here. (laughs) We won't say them. And Hey, some people are doing it. It's just my risk tolerance. No, I know we've, we've had people on the show that are doing it in those areas and are killing it. So I have, I told you guys about my one, my one agent who is a professional investor and, and is a PhD in rocket science and he invests in one of those cities, but it's my mm. risk tolerance. Yep. And I fully admit on a scale of one being like completely, you know, afraid and 10 being completely wild, I'm probably a three or a four. So I don't, right. I don't, I'm not going to go to those cities for just simply that reason. I like a sure thing. Yep. Um, and so I was, I searched all of Montgomery County after this duplex deal was falling apart. I like, is it possible that there's a house in Montgomery County, not in one of those two cities, under $60,000? How is this possible? No, it was a condo. And it was listed for like $52,000. This is 2018. And uh, I'm like, really? So I go look at it. And I make a, I make a you know, I make a lowball offer because I can see that the house is, it's vacant and 
it's been on the market for a while. And I knew that the development that it was in had had depressed values because during the global financial crisis, the HOA was not uh, doing too well. So I make a, you know, I make like a a $45 or $42,000 offer because I'm like, this is crazy. It's in a great school district. Let me see what I can do. And then nothing happens. And then the guy, the agent gives me some kind of little sign that the seller might be interested in dealing with me. Not sure. So I make an, make a, a lower offer, <laughs> so I, you know, like, all right, I'll do this, you know, $40,000. And then, uh, and then between my commission and some concessions that I demanded a couple days ahead of closing, it ends up, you know, net net costing me $35,000 to buy a two bedroom condo in one of the best places, you know, best school districts, best yeah. areas. And so that's crazy. That is crazy. Did, did you finance this? Did you pay no, cash? No, I paid cash yeah, for it. At that point, yeah, it's a yeah. down payment on a normal I don't, house. I don't even know. I don't even know any of my lenders for as long as I've been in the business would want to give me a loan for that. Right. If they don't make any money on that, they'd like, be like, here, oh, your exactly. principal's $20 a month. <laughs> they'd be like, no, I'm not going to give you a mortgage for that. Yeah. So yeah, so that that was fun, and um, you, you know, you take a car like, loan on that house, right? exactly. I should put, I can put it on some credit cards for real. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was just, you know, I, I that was one where I analyzed it. I'm like, I I can't not do this. This is crazy. Even in my risk aversion state, I was still convincing myself that like this, that doesn't make any sense. And the beauty of it is, you know, I stuck a couple thousand dollars into it for new flooring and paint and, you know, some new appliances. Um, and currently it's not rented because the family has been using it for, you know, different reasons, but the rent should be when it goes on the market for rent should be about 13 to $1,400 a month. That's awesome. What are the HOA fees there? The HOA is, I think about, I want to say a little over two fifty. Oh, that's not bad. But at all. but if you build that into your rent, it's not like most HOAs, which I cannot stand, and I usually will not buy something that has an HOA because I feel like those fees are very fluffy and don't really do a lot. Yep. But literally, the only um, only thing that te- anybody has to pay for at the condo is the electric bill, and it's through some third party. So I think the electric is like fifteen dollars. Oh wow. A month. Everything else is covered: trash, heat, air conditioning, water, sewer. That's also. But I, Kayla, um, my fiance, her mom lives in an HOA, and like I love it for my business. It's like, oh, there's like a little dust on the corner of your shutter. Like you either need <laughs> to get that power wash by this date, or we're charging you fifteen dollars a day until yeah. it's fixed. Like, is do you fall under that? No, Those, it's not. It's okay. not like that. That's awesome. Because I. That's why I said, generally speaking, as an investor, I will I will avoid HOAs because I like to have control of my bottom line. Mm-hmm. And I've I've been in HOAs where they're run really well. And then I've been in H and I'm talking financially. And then I've been in HOAs like the house at the beach um, with the you know the overappraised one. That HOA, the same house was all over. The same condo building was built all over that town, and HOA fees. We're all different at every association. Oh. So it's like, mm, not everybody is as good at keeping tight rein on the expenses the way I am. And that's, you know, that's obviously how you improve your profit is, you know, different things. But I always like to have a good, good handle on the expenses. And I don't want to live or have tenants live somewhere where every other minute somebody's complaining about your 
wind chimes or dust on your shutters or something right, like that. Right, right. Yeah. No, but that's that's also that's going to be such a, a good just cash flow off enough. Like your cash on cash on that has got to be it's stupid. Stupid. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So I love deals like that and there haven't been too many. Mm-hmm. There haven't been too many, but once in a while, you know, you come across and, and truthfully, if I were looking super hard, I have to say that I've kind of, you know, a little bit not been doing too much with it because the market's been so hot for so many years. I mean, you guys talk about your uh, plumber handyman extraordinaire. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to get him to buy a property for the last couple of years. But truthfully, it's just been you know, neither of us have the stomach for the the bidding war situation. I just don't, I just don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough time to start. And like, I got in this, like back in my first deal came in the end of August or I guess end of September. And it was the same thing. Tons of offers. My first place I liked it. I went and saw that I wanted to put an offer in. I was like, this is the place. Like, you know, of course, emotionally attached immediately. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, of course, somebody comes in way over asking cash um, offer. You're just like, wow, okay, so this is the game I'm playing now. Like, this is going to be how it is. And you just got to keep going with it. There's still, like you said, there's deals out there and like you found one yourself. And, you know, I found this place I'm in, you know, talking to you right now. And, you know, it's just a matter of just keeping your eye on the market because they come up. People, you know, sometimes don't know what they have or don't want to, you know, go to the moon with their list price or maybe other people on the market just didn't see it before you did and you're able to put an offer in and they get accepted right away so there's always you know a way even if it is crazy i did want to like transition a little bit and you know go back to that initial thing we'd brought up you know during the intro where we um went over our demo i went through our demographics and just saw that we were at 90 percent men nine percent women and then one percent other and i was just curious from your perspective like how You've been in it for a little bit now, you know, 21 years. You've seen a lot more than we have. And, you know, I haven't met anybody else who's a a woman in real estate investing, you know, besides you. So I'm just curious, like, what is your perspective on this anomaly? And, you know, how does that look like from you? You know, oh, my goodness. You know, I thought about this. I had a big aha moment like four years ago. I was out walking and talking to my daughter on the phone who was living in New York at the time. And she was telling me um, somebody she worked with was going to go up to upstate New York and they were going to fix and flip a house. And she started talking about fixing and flipping. Now, I had the, the aha that I had was I have three kids, two are boys and one is a girl. Those boys, when I had the rental properties, they were mowing, they were painting, they were, you know, when tenants leave, they had to do stuff. Not my girl. I never talked to her about this stuff. And when she brought it up to me, I thought, I've done a huge disservice to my child, my female child, by talking to her about stuff that, you know, a lot of times, and maybe this is stereotypical, but shopping and clothing and, you know, boys and stuff like that. And I started talking to, I was like, wow, I've I've done you a huge disservice. I need to start talking to you about this buying a house thing. So I, I think... I think it is just some of its socialization. And, you know, I think about as a mother, I tell my boys, you know, when my boys get, you know, hit by the baseball or they fall off their bike, I tell them to get up and brush it off. And when my little girl falls down, I have a different response. It's not like brush it off. You're going to be fine. You know, I think it starts there. But I am here to tell you that I want to change that 
um, narrative because you know girls are more more college you know i think the demographic is there's more women in college than there's men in college um you know women are breadwinners single women are buying houses left and right we need to have these conversations with women and i think i think what you know what it is is part partly is socialization and partly is risk aversion i mean i you guys have heard me and your listeners have heard me again and again say how like frightened i am of doing something too crazy even in real estate investing um and i think that there's just a you know a stability factor but i also think that most people don't know how easy it is to be able to buy multiple properties, not just the one you live in. And maybe it's, we just need to do some mind expansion. Um, I, I may have mentioned to you guys the other night that my sort of personal mission in life is to help women build wealth. And it's not about the money. It's about being able to make better choices for themselves and their kids. And that's my, you know, that's sort of my goal in life. So I know we talked about how I went to the, I was super excited when I was going to a meetup and these two guys were going to tell there's, there were software engineers and they were going to tell everybody how they cracked the code on buying apartment buildings. And I went to the meetup and there was about a hundred people in the room ahead of time for the, you know, the happy hour thing. And out of the hundred people I counted six women. And wow. so we need to change that. And I'm, you know, I, I don't know. What do you guys think it is? What do you think the reason? Hard to say. I mean, I, from my perspective, it just seems like the women I've talked to about this just are not interested in it. And, you know, that's just some people like to do certain things. Uh, Jake enjoys doing, you know, manual labor. I prefer to sit and, you know, use my brain and write code for work. And that's just yeah. what we enjoy. And, you know, you can't really like force somebody into it. So I don't know if there's like a, a more biological difference where it's like, you know, women are more you know, geared towards other roles versus men are geared towards like the extreme risk taking of going all in on a, in the, you know, the short term, a huge investment into something they've never done before, you know, to manage something that is much bigger than them to then be able to build that and make wealth. You know, that's, that's a really big, you know, decision to make. And, you know, I think as the, from other podcasts like Bigger Pockets, they've mentioned this as well. They've had other women guests on where they talked about similar things. So it's not just like, you know, our demographic only. It's like the whole industry itself. So yeah, like it is hard to say exactly what it is that's causing it. But, you know, I've definitely seen it. How about you, Jake? Yeah, so I, I, I definitely see the, the biological, you know, difference and just evolutionary, you know, men were the providers, men were the hunters and went out on the expeditions and did that all in type of stuff to advance. And the women took care of the rest. And, you know, we've grown in a society so, so different from that, where it's, that is not a necessity anymore. And with that loss of necessity, I think we're, we're going towards, and it's sad to say, but extremely high divorce rate and there's less women counting on men to provide because it's just as easy for them to provide as it is for the men so now it's this weird balance thing where now you know men feel less needed and women are feeling more empowered and it's like that's not wrong that's not a bad thing for women to feel more empowered and men to feel less needed but it's just that inter brainwave where like as a man, our parents, you know, provided most of the time mm-hmm. and, and definitely not always. But and so now it's kind of it's going forward and there's that 
that disconnect and it's it's driving families apart and it's it's sad where there's less of a instinct for a man to want to support a woman in her achieving her goals and her achieving her ambitions and i think that starts with teaching men to support a woman's goals and ambitions and work mm. together as a partnership instead of no you need to support my thing you need to go with what i'm saying cuz i'm the provider it's like no we can do this together it's definitely culturally i mean things are different in different areas it's different right yeah. absolutely yeah. even then going from there you know to to more what you were saying as the growing up you know you didn't teach your daughter those same mentality that that same toughness that same resiliency that you taught your boys and that i think manifests in high school and college and and women to now okay i what's the word i'm looking for like i am hoping to keep up with the my surroundings and there's less of a a desire to get ahead and more of a desire to fit in and with real estate that you know, we, we can have good jobs, but this aspiration of, you know, I want to retire by the time I'm 30 is so out of the norm. It's so different. It's so going against what all of your friends are doing. And it's, it can almost be seen as greed when in reality, it's, it's so much more, you're providing more jobs and you're just escaping that, that financial prison of, you know, working a nine to five until you're 65. And that, that reward, like for me, that that is so important. That's you know the most important thing in my life. Like I, you know, Kayla wants to to be a nurse, be a, a nurse practitioner, and and continue to help people her whole life. She doesn't want to retire. She loves what she does, and I'm I'm so cool with managing the rental properties and staying home with the kids and letting her mm-hmm. do her thing and like you know having that balance that way. And it's just I don't know. I I, I see just less of a ambition for like world dominance from women. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where that's not necessarily what you need to do with real estate. Once we get a taste for it though. And I think that's the thing is, you know, uh, if we can help women, because I'm thinking about, it's not even just women. I think a lot of people don't realize that these programs exist where they can, you know, own a home, and buy another home for an investment or own a home and turn that into a rental and, you know, buy something else. They don't, they don't realize that the potential exists. And that's yeah, the, the awareness is getting broader now, especially with podcasts, like the long form, just like information dumps is like yeah. such a new, you know, kind of trend that's happening now. And if you look at like the distribution of people, you know, who are listening to podcasts, I'm very, fairly confident it's primarily men, um, you know, who are the weirdos spending hours and hours listening to other people talking about just some one specific topic. But that's one, you know, like new thing to come out recently that people are doing. And I think that's kind of why we're seeing these demographics but like you said once you get the taste once you figure out like the process and how good it actually is long term there's no going back like you can't no. just turn it off once yeah. you get che- once you get checks you're like oh yeah yeah <laughs> and I, even even going in on that more like the tribalism aspect of you know and this happens in all facets of life whether it's you know race sex anything there's intrinsically a, a, a tribalistic like I want to help the other guy, 
you know, provide for his family this way. Right. And I want to pass down these secrets to, to my son, who's going to be the breadwinner. I, I want to pass these these tips and tricks to, you know, the hardworking kid down the street. And it's less incentivized to kind of pass that towards, you know, the opposite, where where a lot of most of the landlords, you know, are men. So they're passing it down to other men. And yeah. if that changes, you know, if just that change and more women start becoming landlords and landladies and um, <laughs> slum ladies, <laughs> slum ladies, and, you know, that that's now going to get passed to all the women in their life. And I think yeah. that's kind of where we have the opportunity to now push this to the women in our lives mm-hmm. and start that cycle. That's that's awesome. And yeah, that's and like I said, that's my goal. And maybe that can we should do a whole nother podcast on justice and we should invite girls in because maybe they can come in and ask their questions because I think that, you know, but, but really there is that information sharing. And I, you know, I even find it when, like I talked about my guy, who's the the rocket scientist, I'll get him on the phone and just, you know, can I have some of your time and then talk for 40 minutes and just ask my questions, write down, write down the answers he gives me because I am still learning but everybody has to start somewhere. And so if we can if we can help anybody build wealth through real estate, that's that's awesome. It's not just limited. I would just love to see. I mean, I know a ton of girls who are doing this, all different kinds of cool stuff. Like one girl only does lease options. Hmm. And she never she she will buy houses for like fifteen dollars with an option contract. <laughs> like they're doing cool stuff. Yeah. They're out there, and so we just you know to get it to more to more gals would be awesome. Yeah. So can I? I want to ask you guys a question. Mm-hmm. So tell me, how did you come up with the young slumlords as your? Because it's you know, yeah. I know I've I know Caleb since he was a weekend warrior, and I met <laughs> you the other night, Jake, and you're an awesome guy. There's no chance that you know Slumlord gives the uh, connotation that you're not doing anything to take care of your properties and stuff is falling down. And I know that that's neither one of you guys. Right, right. So the start to the podcast was you know, a few months ago when I was driving home and I was listening to another podcast that was talking about making podcasts. They were pretty much saying in order to have a successful podcast, you just need to be genuine in what you're talking about. You can't be trying to be the next Joe Rogan. You can't be trying right. to be the next bigger pockets because you'll always fall short of becoming that thing. As long as you're genuine talking how you talk and talking about the things that are on your mind, either people are going to like it or they're not going to like it. And that just it it resonated with me a lot cuz it was like, you know, there's there's cool parts of my story, there's cool parts of Caleb's story that like I think a lot of people can relate to and we're in this niche and we're we're new but we're, you know, really devoting a lot of time to learning more and and taking action. So we wanted yeah. to kind of spread that throughout our sphere. You know, really w- whether this goes beyond our sphere at any point or not, it doesn't matter to me if a hundred guys are listening that all went to our high school or, you know, whatever, and two of them decide to buy rental properties and can retire a lot earlier than if they didn't listen to the podcast. Like that's the point. Yeah, so then awesome. going to the name, like it just rang in my head. It was perfect. <laughs> like the the first, when I bought the triplex in, in Quakertown, I, I held up, I had all the keys. I stood in front of the house and I like had Kayla take a picture of me and I like just felt like 
the new slumlord. And I posted a picture and people, oh, Quaker Town's got a new slumlord. Oh, you know, <laughs> this and that. And I, I loved it because it was like, um, you know, just a good, like, <laughs> not a good feeling of like being the slumlord, but it was like, that's what that is kind of known as. And it's such a negative. Yeah. And the fun part with it is, you know, both of us are house hacking our rental properties. We're bringing them up to a quality that we personally not only would live in, but like actually are Do living live in. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and awesome. So like to, to say that we're slumlords is so far from like what the reality is and right. like the amount that we care is so far from that, that slumlord presence that it's almost just like ironic. And it's like- oh. Oh, it's like the Patriot Act and the Affordable Care Act. It's <laughs> just like that. That's per- That's a perfect analogy. I love it. It's and, opposite day. Yeah. All right. Because I, I know you guys. I know you guys. You were talking passionately about all the work that you've done to your properties and all the stuff that you've done. And I'm like, this moniker is fun and catchy, but it's not who you are. Right. And and I've I've had people like plenty of people reach out to me like when we made the the Facebook group and like the Instagram page like I've had like other landlords you know message me and be like hey I I'm offended by <laughs> the term slumlord and it's like probably because you're a slumlord like <laughs> landlords themselves like that actually care w- aren't offended by this term the people that are are slumlords and like that's it. it's that and it's also like we're really trying to to play to the the younger demographic that like you know building financial wealth through real estate investing isn't as isn't going to attract the same it's super boring it's not going to (laughs) attract the same following that like we're hoping for with like high school kids and like kids in college that are like oh slung slumlords that are young Huh. Like, and it just gets that, like, that little piece of the brain right. moving. So, I got it. I see who you're after now. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, I yeah, get yeah. it. Susie, really, you know, thanks a lot for coming on and sharing your story oh. here. It's, it was really cool to go through, you know, all your experiences and, you know, get some insight, especially in other markets, you know, that, you know, we've never even looked at the MLS on, you know, let alone, you know, per- help people sell deals and, you know, yeah. even do investments in ourselves. So that was really cool insight. So just to, to leave, leave off, do you have any type of tips or recommendations for someone just starting out that yeah. like, you know, is worth looking into? Absolutely. If somebody, if, if people are in a rental and even if they're not, if they own a house and they don't have an FHA mortgage, what I wish someone would have told me back when I bought my first house, is don't buy a townhouse. Go buy a four unit, use your FHA and buy a four unit because that would have been 1997. And well, that was a long time ago. That would have been almost paid off by now, wouldn't it? Yep. And coming up on being paid off. And so, um, and people, and I hear a lot of people say, oh, I don't know if I want to be a landlord. I'm afraid to be a landlord. Good, build in the 10% property management fee. Yeah into your thing and you you don't have to do anything. You just, you know, buy it and let somebody else manage it. Caleb, Caleb really touched on something that's super important when you're buying. I can't stress it enough. Do not get emotionally involved. The one burn deal that I had, that beach house, the short sale, the appraisal that I knew was wrong. That was my only emotional purchase Mm. in my entire career. I knew I was emotionally involved and I still ignored the logic of the appraisal. So 
there's always a deal. Don't fall in love until you get the keys. Yeah. And don't make yourself fall in love with a deal that you know doesn't make financial sense. Yeah. And finally, is 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 there anything, any way that people can reach you or find out more about you? Oh, yeah. So we'll just look my name up on the internet. Susie, my last name is spelled T-R-U-A-X, true X. And if anybody has any questions, they can... Uh, Email me, Susie T at EXP Realty, or I'm on Instagram, Susie T underscore EXP. I'm out there. They can find me. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to answer questions for anyone. It's my passion is to, you know, take everything I've learned along the way and share it with other people because, you know, none of us are getting out of here alive and I can, somebody can benefit from my 22 years of experience (laughs) doing this. I'm happy to share. Awesome. Thanks again so much. This has been awesome. All right. Have a great evening. Thank you. You too. You too. Peace.